Edgar uh, Wisenant was a NASA engineer in the 1970s and 1980s. However, his name was not associated with uh, space shuttles, their successes, or their failures in, in the 80s. His, he, he, he gained notoriety because of a couple books that he authored. And some of you will have heard of these. One of them is 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. And so here it is. The other is On Borrowed Time. This is just a unique copy that you flip it over and turn it upside down and you can read both of them. Um, so there were 300,000 copies of 88 reasons that were sent free of charge to pastors all across the United States in 1988. And there were another 4.5 million copies that were sold in bookstores um, around the world. And so this is a copy that I was not delivered in 1988. I was 11 years old. Um, but I picked this up probably in a used bookstore or thrift store or something just for novelty's sake. Now it is very difficult to read because it's written in all caps. Now I just say that is... That is hard for me to, to look very long at something like that. But just a note to you in texting and email, uh, I prefer that. I pre- unless you're really angry with me, please don't write in all caps. Um, now, he, he, was, he was probably a well-meaning student of the Bible. Clearly, he was a brilliant man. Um, and his goal was, no doubt, admirable to wake up kind of a sleeping church and in that day. Um, but his predictions were obviously wrong, and he predicted the rapture would occur in 1988 and sometime between September 11th to 13, and it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen in 1988, he wrote another book saying that it, he was off in his calculations and it was going to be 1989, but even that he qualified and said, I, I, may, there, I may still not be right, and so he later predicted 1993, 1994, 1997, and I think that was the last year he made a prediction. Now, I, I share that not to poke fun, but, I, but it does raise an important question, and it gets to an important question, not... Can we discern the date of Jesus' return? That's not the question. But the question is, how should we, as the church, conduct ourselves in light of the fact that we're living in the last days? What is that? How should we live in light of that reality? Peter says in verse 7, we just read this, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things, the, the coming day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. This is at hand. This window of opportunity for unbelievers to respond by, to, uh, to, to, to the offer of the Gospel by believing in Jesus Christ. That, that window is, is closing. And for us who are in Christ, the, the, the prospect of eternal glory and face-to-face fellowship with our Lord, it's, it's near. And so the end of all things is at hand. Peter's speaking eschatologically. I know it's a big word, many of you know, but eschatology, it's just a study, the, the doctrine of last things. And so we're talking about those end times, those future events yet to, to, to occur. And so this is a pervasive and important theme throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, this eschatology. And so now some Christians have been kind of turned off 
to eschatology because of some craziness like this. And, and, and some of those who are even today, they promote, I, I've heard Pastor Dow, I don't know if you created this term, but I've, uh, this, this kind of newspaper eschatology where you're, you're seeing the Bible through the lens of, of popular headlines and trying to, trying to make the Bible fit into what you're seeing in our own day. And so because of that craziness, some, some kind of, don't, don't pay much attention to it. But rightly understood, eschatology, the, the last things, the, 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 the return of Christ, it's to be a compelling motive of our lives for, for Christians today. And so not, not in terms of, of guessing dates, but, but what we believe about the future makes all the difference in how we live now. And Peter's going to make this very plain. So eschatology, it's not, it's not simply a doctrine that we kind of, we study enough to acquire it, and then we kind of stick it in the top, back top corner bookshelf of our minds, you know, out of the way. We don't really need to access it very often, so it just kind of sits up there and gathers dust. I have books like that. Well, here's one. It just kind of sits up there, and I pull it down every once in a while like this. That, that, that's not what eschatology is. It's not, uh, use a different illustration, it's not a formal living room kind of, of doctrine. And so it's not something that's kind of neat to have, and it's showy and all, but it's really impractical, and we don't really use it. Maybe you use your formal living room if you have one, but I think most people do not. No, our understanding of the last days is very relevant and should transform us. We just see some way in which Paul speaks about this. He, he wrote to this young church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. Just listen what he says to them. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Now, so he says that, but he doesn't say it to just kind of uh, satisfy their intellectual or theological curiosity. No, why does he say this? Verse 18, the very next verse. Therefore, because of this, encourage or comfort one another with these words. So he wrote about the last things. He writes about eschatology to, to be of comfort, to be of encouragement to, to the troubled hearts of these believers. And so this is Peter's aim in, in this letter as well. This is why eschatology is such a repeated theme in First Peter to these suffering sojourners who were few in number, who were opposed by the culture around them and, and ostracized and maligned by people and, and scattered around. And he, he writes to encourage, to comfort, to strengthen them. So he says back in chapter 1 and verse 5, you, you have this, inher- this heavenly inheritance that will be revealed in the last time. And this is to, to, to grow hope in them, living hope in them. Verse 7, you will be rewarded when Jesus Christ is revealed. And verse 13, you are to fix your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when we read verse 7 of chapter 4, what we just read a moment ago, the end of all things is at hand. It's not abrupt as it seems to us at first. As abrupt as it seems. It's not out of place. 
I know he's been talking about suffering for righteousness sake before verse 7 and he's going to keep talking about that after verse 11 and we'll be right back in suffering next week. But these verses in front of us, they're not disconnected from that context. It's not some kind of random detour or parenthesis that he just, um, he just kind of had a thought. I don't want to forget about it so I'm going to put something about the end of all things here. That's not it at all. This is connected right into this context. And, and so in, in, in our English translation, at least in the ESV, what I'm using in front of me, it's not as obvious as it is in the Greek. And you don't need to know Greek to understand the Bible. That's not my point. But, but unfortunately, the ESV anyway, it omits this little conjunction that's there in the Greek at the beginning of verse 7. Verse 7 should begin with something like, Now, or but... It's it, a little conjunctive particle. So Peter's connecting verses 7 to 11, both grammatically and, as we'll see, thematically to what proceeds and what follows. And so their, their apprehension, their understanding of the end of all things is critical to their encouragement, comfort, hope, strength as they suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is necessary for they, as they live in very difficult times. And so, here's the general flow of the passage. This is not a, this is not like we've, we've had a couple doozies the last few, few Sundays and some real difficult interpretive matters. This is not one of those passages. It's very plain. There's this concise but profound statement in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. And then the next word is what? Therefore. Therefore, how do we live in light of this? And then Peter gives uh, four exhortations to his readers, to us, as to how we're to live in light of this eschatological reality. And so there are these four. Really, we're going to see, we're going to state five ways that, that, that this truth about future events intersects with our lives in the present. And, and so that's what, that's how this passage is, 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 developed for us here. So one more thing before we move on to these exhortations. You you see, when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, we ask the question, was he wrong? I mean, he's writing 2,000 years ago, and, and Christ still hasn't returned, and so is Peter, was he mistaken? And there are liberal, you know, uh, critics of the Bible who point to passages like this and say, ah, oh, see, it's, Peter didn't know what he's talking about, and this, this invalidates the inspiration of the Bible. That's not true at all. Peter answers this charge uh, from scoffers in his own day in Second Peter, his second letter, Second Peter three three to ten, and, and basically I don't have time to look at that now, but he basically says we God's understanding of time is different than ours, and 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 any extension of time God has given. It, before Christ's return, is due only to His patience and His grace and His mercy. It's because He doesn't desire uh, uh, sinners to perish, but to come to repentance. And so, we can say today, just as Peter could say in his day, that the end of all things is is at hand. It's The word we use is imminent. That's in our doctrinal statement. We're talking about Christ's return. A few things, few words that stand out. I just went and looked at it last night. It's personal. Christ will return bodily, and it's imminent. Which means it's not a. We're not saying how long it's going to be. We're just saying it could happen at any time. There's nothing left in it to be done before Christ returns. He's he's at the door. He could come back at any moment. We're still living, as Patrick said earlier, in the last 
days. And so how do we, the question is, how do we live on the edge of eternity? Knowing that Christ could return at any time. And so he, he, he states that, and, and so after all this build up, the end of all things is at hand. We, we're maybe a little surprised at what he says next. I mean, I, if, just, if you didn't know what was here already, you might, you might expect something, some kind of exotic, uh, unusual, uh, dramatic, big exhortation and action. You know, the end of all things is at hand, therefore sell everything you have and go to the hardest places in the world, the most unreached places, and just lay your life down for the sake of the gospel. That's great to do, but that's not what he says. Or the end of all things is at hand, therefore get all the Christians around the world together, have a big worship pep rally, and get a big stadium, and just join in there and sing until, because he's coming soon. That's, that's not what he says. Instead, Peter exhorts us to some very common forms of godliness. And so here's our biblical bucket list. Because the end of all things is at hand, before the end comes... Be self-controlled, sober-minded, so that you can pray effectively. Above all, love one another. Show complaint-free hospitality to one another. And serve one another with the spiritual gifts God has given you. And above all, glorify God. That's, that's what he says to them. That's all right. After that lengthy and introduction and explanation, basically verses seven, verse 7 and 8, and kind of getting a sense of the whole passage, let's look at how we're to live on the edge of eternity. So how should we, as the church, live now in light of then? And how do we live now in light of then? Um, and, and, and again, when times are tough, which is the context that Peter's writing. Again, We've said this throughout, but I can't say it enough because it's so easy to forget. Don't just think in terms of personal application here. This isn't Peter writing a letter to a person. This is Peter writing to believers and churches. This is, and these commands are inherently corporate. And so think in terms of a church as a local church. How do we live on the edge of eternity? First one is this. Because the end of all things is at hand, Keep a clear head to pray effectively. Keep a clear head to pray effectively. So Peter starts off with these two kind of hand-in-hand commands. These double-barreled imperatives here that, that, that they're so important in light of the imminent end of all things. And so the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So be self-controlled. Now, what do we think of when we think of self-control? We probably think of our ability or our lack of ability to say no to our cravings and passions. And so when we think of self-control, it's, we think, well, let's just say, we think it's, it's about not eating the fourth piece of chocolate cake. So therefore I have self-control. Now, I have so much self-control, I refuse to eat the first piece of chocolate cake. Which, if some of you know me, that doesn't really say anything. But or we say it's 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 about not binge watching Netflix for eight hours straight. Or self control is about it's about not checking your phone at every red light because we know that's against the law and unsafe. 
Now these, these are expressions of self-control, but the New Testament idea of self-control that we're, we see here, it involves much more than that. First, it, it begins in the mind. It's, it's, it's not just what we do, it's, it's how we think. That's this, this word for self-control. It's, it has to do with the mind. And also, it's positive before it's negative. So even if you just take the example of chocolate cake and, and eating too much. And so, it's not just saying no to the fourth piece of cake. Self-control is it's thinking rightly about food and about our bodies and about, about the glory of God. That's what self-control is. So it's positive. It has to do with the mind. But snacking and TV and hands-free driving, that's not exactly what Peter has in mind as he's saying they need to be self-controlled and sober-minded in light of the coming of the Lord. No, these original readers, like us, we have the same tendency, they had minds and they had feelings that could just race out of control as they looked at the world around them. And they saw what was happening and they, and they saw and they, and they experienced what was going on in the world around them. Their, their minds and their emotions, they could just run and they needed to control their thoughts. They needed to have self-control. They needed to have control of their mind. They needed to have sound judgment to be level-headed. They needed a proper perspective, right priorities. A, a, a proper perspective on what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. This is the idea of this, what he says, to be self-controlled. And then the next command is kind of a twin brother of self-control, and they're very close in meaning. But to be sober-minded, as opposed to live, living with impaired or kind of drunken thoughts, to, to, to think as if we're intoxicated, he says you need to be clear-minded. So he tells them, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, don't panic. You, you need to be of clear, uh, a clear mind. Keep a calm head. Why? Why does he say this? And he tells us, for the sake of your prayers. Don't panic. Pray. And he doesn't tell us to keep a clear head just simply so that we will pray, like just do the thing, the activity of praying. No, he says, do this so that you can pray more effectively. For the suffering sojourner, for the elect exile, this is how Peter describes his readers, and this is what it, this is how all believers are really described. And and for us, a praying life is critical. We need that communion and that the conversation with the Lord. And so, just think about this letter and how clear-headed, effective prayer would be so important to these believers and to us. Just think of some of the things we've seen. To pray for strength during trials. To pray for our souls to to remain hopeful and joyful in the Lord, even in the midst of persecution. To pray that we won't retaliate against those who malign us, but instead will bless those who persecute us. We need to pray, we need to plead with God for that help. To pray for our government, even when they oppose us. To pray for unbelieving spouses and marriages that are very difficult because maybe there's unjust treatment by an unsaved spouse, husband or wife. And on and on. Just think of all we've seen in this letter and how critical prayer is for a suffering sojourner. And so, he says, the end of all things is near. And what should this do? It should provoke this 
fresh dependence upon God that's manifested in prayer as we entreat God to act and to move in whatever time still remains. God, act, work, help. This is what they, this is what we need most in the midst of opposition to the gospel that we experience as sojourners in this world. Tim Keller, uh, in a book on prayer, he, he says this just about prayer in general. To fail to pray is not merely to break some religious rule, but that is how we often think about it, isn't it? Like if we, 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 if you want to just lay a guilt trip on people, talk about evangelism or prayer. And we all think, man, I, I gotta do that more. I gotta pray more. I gotta, I gotta share my faith more. But, but, but to fail to pray is not merely to break a religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. And we, as church, we must not fail in that way. We must not fail to treat God as God. And therefore, we are utterly dependent upon Him. And so what do we do as we're consciously aware of our dependence upon God? We pray. And we've got we've to be effective in praying. So we must keep a clear head in light of the end of all things. We've got to be sober-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray effectively as a church. So that's the first First exhortation, in light of the end of all things, therefore, be clear-headed for the sake of prayers. The next exhortations, the next reminders, are, are very explicitly going to, to, to show us that, that an understanding of the end times is not meant to drive us into isolation. It's not meant to, 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 to send us on our own. It's not every man for himself because the end of all things is an end. And so this is not meant to drive us to where we could maybe be uh, considered to be on the show preppers or something like that. The end of all things is at hand, therefore go out and find some remote place, build a bunker for you and your family until Christ returns. That's not what he says. No, the nearness of Christ's return, it does the opposite. It doesn't drive us away, it doesn't drive us into isolation. It pushes us towards one another in close biblical community. And that's what, that's the, the, the next exhortations. They, they make that very explicit because the end of all things is at hand. Next, make intense sin covering love a priority in the church. Verse 8 again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude. Did you get that? A multitude. Of sins. I mean, every word in that verse is just loaded. Just see what's, what's, uh, what unfolds here. First thing, love takes precedence. He says, above all. That doesn't mean we can just love and ignore everything else that, that Peter says or everything else in Scripture. That's not it. But it's a reminder of the primacy of love. I mean, this is shown elsewhere in Scripture. Faith, hope, love remain these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's the greatest commandment? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So in light of the Lord's imminent return, we must do those things that are most important. We must, and so, so love must be of supreme importance and priority in the local church. In this local body, brothers and sisters, above all, 
love. Second thing he says about love, he says, keep loving. Above all, keep loving. Emphasis on keep. Love doesn't let up. Peter isn't trying to get them to start something new that they've not been doing already. He's, he's trying to get them to keep on and to excel even more. To make sure that this, this love is a sustained reality for them and a sustain, and it's continual. It's non-stop. It's, this kind of love that Peter's exhorting us to, it's, he's not, he's not calling to us, all, us to some kind of grand moment of love. You know, baby, I'd, t- I'd die for you. I'd take a bullet for you. And so this is, this great act of love and, and with, oh, that's so sweet. That's not it. He's saying, you keep going, continual, non-stop, keep on loving. A continuous, habitual lifestyle of earnest love. Another thing that we see as we just unpack verse 8 is that love is, is local. It's local. I, and by that I mean, look, look what he says. Keep loving one another. This isn't just a nice idea that Peter is calling us to. It's not some kind of Oprah-like philosophy of life. We just need to be more loving people. It's not sentimentality. No, this is a real, tangible expression of love for the actual people God has placed in our lives. He says, you, above all, keep loving one another. He, it's not theoretical. This is very concrete. The people that God has placed around you, in particular in the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ around you, those are the people that you must keep on loving, above all, loving them earnestly. And, 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 and so Peter, he's putting the accent here on the priority of the local church and a participation and involvement in it. So this is local face-to-face, life-on-life love. Another thing we see, it's to be strenuous love. It's not casual. He says, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, I realize earnest is not a word that is, that's not cool lingo, as Eric would say. Uh, that, that's probably not a word the teenagers are texting with each other. You're a very earnest person. Um, and, but but this is a good word. In the the Greek word here, the idea is it's to stretch out. You've probably heard preachers illustrate this word before. But it, it, you could just picture a a racehorse in the Kentucky Derby at full gallop, where he's just stretched out. Every muscle is taut, and he's just trying to get his nose across that finish line. Or a or a human, a sprinter, just you know just. Focus, body pointed towards that finish line. Every muscle pumping to get across that line as quick as we can. That's the idea of earnestness. And, and, and this is to define how we love one another. So it's not, it's not just kind of casual, easy. I don't mean it's like intense. And, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's to be deep, um, strenuous love. Stretching love. He's not just talking about being polite or having kind of nice feelings for one another. It's, he's calling us to all out, flat out, strenuous, stretching, uh, exerting deep, earnest love for one another. And then we go on. 
One more expression here that just shows what's to characterize us as, as we love one another in the church in light of the end of all things. See this, and we're to keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I'd say it this way, love starves sin. The reason why this flat out, non-stop, prioritized, uh, continual love is so important for the church is because it covers sins. A multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? And you, this would be the one we would say, what, what does he mean by that? Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's just first say what it doesn't mean, clearly. For one, I don't think you would think this is what it means, but just in case. Peter's not saying that being a loving person covers our own sins. That's not what he's saying. He's, we, are, we owe our atonement to love, but it's not our love for others. It's Christ's love for us. And so that's clearly not what he's implying here. Christ's atoning blood has covered our sins. We don't do that by you know our works and deeds of love. Also though, this does not mean that love uh, condones sin or covers up sin or makes light of sin. It doesn't mean love sweeps sin under the rug and just minimizes it. Not at all. It doesn't mean that love avoids the difficulty of, of humble confrontation and, and correction when there's sin. It doesn't mean that love shirks the responsibility of something like church discipline for sin. No, in fact, love, love doesn't avoid those things, but love motivates and it flavors and infuses those biblical responsibilities. And that's how it covers sin. So what this means is that Love is ready to overlook, to forbear, and to forgive again and again and again. That's got to be functioning in the life of the church. Love is, is the anti-venom for sin in the church. One writer says it like this, By simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. And then listen to this. This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us to make love the controlling principle in our daily lives. That last line, what he means is, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts in just a moment, but you think, man, I don't, what can I do in the church? You can love. And you can cover a multitude of sins with your love and you are doing inestimable uh, good in, in, the, in the context of a local church when you do that. Not, not retaliating for a wrong, overlooking sin, forbearing with sin, forgiving sin. What a ministry. So, so this is love that overlooks sin and weakness and mistakes. It's, it's love that forbears with others in the church. It's, it's love that protects, it's this love that protects the church from the awful effects of spreading sin. Instead, the evil thing dies. The insult dies. The, the, the rumor dies. The, the gossip dies. The anger dies because because we love and it covers and it smothers sin. 
This is love that embodies what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. When love covers a multitude of sins, this is what's happening. Love is showing itself by being kind and patient, not envying, not boasting, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, not keeping a record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, but rejoicing in truth. Always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering, never failing. I mean, you, you can see this is, this is love that covers a multitude of sins. And why is this expression of love so necessary in the context of a local church? <laughs> because we have a multitude of sins. Because of the presence, the reality of the presence of indwelling sin in our, in our lives and in, therefore in our church. We, we all continue to sin even when we fight against it with all of our hearts. We, we all bring a multitude of sins in the church. And don't flatter yourselves thinking otherwise. And the, and the more we interact with one another and the closer we become to one another in, our, in, in the context of a local church, the more we will see and experience the sins of one another. And so for those, let me just say, for those of you who are new to Baraka or visiting for the first or 15th time, and I just want you to have a realistic, not a romantic uh, expectation for this church. We are a church um, of sinners that's full of sinners. <laughs> now, I love this church and God is at work here and, and I love what He's doing and I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, but know that what you see after the first few visits isn't all there is. <laughs> And so I know you may, I mean, maybe you come, you like the worship services, you love the layout of our building because it reminds you of those escape room games and stuff like that and trying to find the bathroom and where things are or you love the preacher's hairdo. I know it's really nice and, and, um, but, but after being here a Sunday or two, you, you think, man, finally I found the church I'm looking for. This church has got everything going for all the other churches I've been to. And have looked at, they, they don't have it, but this church is God. I'm not saying you say it, but I've heard people speak like that. Let me just go ahead and burst the bubble. <laughs> That's, it, 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 again, we have sinners here who, who actually sin and who actually sin against one another. And this is a reality. But this is, this is why love for one another must be prioritized and it must be continual. And it must be strenuous. For that kind of love, it covers a multitude of sins. And we need it, brothers and sisters. D.A. Carson said on this verse, he commented, Mature Christians know that their own... Let me start that again. Mature Christians know their own hearts well enough to realize that they need such love and that they need to display it. Absolutely. Now, I don't consider myself a very mature Christian, but I certainly understand I need this form of love. And, and I have been the object of this form of love from my wonderful wife, from our fellow, my fellow pastors and elders in this church, from you, our congregation. And so I officially, publicly want to thank you for, for loving me and covering sins, for overlooking, for forbearing, for forgiving. I need this, and you need it, brother and sister. And so as we love one another in this local church in this theologically informed way, we're, we, will, we can be a thriving church. But if this expression of love is neglected, 
if the seeds of this evil thing of suspicion and bitterness and separation and offense, if they're quietly being sown and allowed to linger, then the effects of those sinful seeds were going, are going to eventually sprout and will be reaped publicly and can cause all kinds of division. And so if you listen to Peter, there's this, I think there's this note of urgency in his voice as he writes this command. Because of what's at stake in the church if we neglect it. And remember, that this wasn't a context where there were all of these numerous churches and numerous options in the area where they could say, you know what, I'm just going to go down here to this church. That wasn't the case, like it is in our day. They couldn't just change churches to find a better fit for them. They couldn't get away from the difficulty. No, the, the church was this tiny minority in each and every geographical location that existed. And, and, so, and, and so there's this urgency for Peter as the end of all things is at hand and, and suffering is, is present and sin abounds. And so we, you, you must love above all. Love strenuously. Love continually. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Because what's at stake if the evil thing doesn't die but it grows and sprouts and the church is dis, 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 dismantled because of division and and sin allowing to foster. Well, in that day in, in particular, there was no other, no other opportunity for the gospel to go out because there were no other churches. So this is, this is huge. By the grace of God and in the shadow of the Christ, where Christ, uh, shadow of the cross, where Christ made atonement for sin, brothers and sisters, in light of Jesus' imminent return, let's reflect Jesus' love by forbearing with each other, by forgiving each other, covering a multitude of sins so that the evil thing dies and it leaves no seed in our church. Third, and this is, flows out of the second exhortation, this is a particular expression of love. Because the end of all things is at hand, show happy hospitality. In verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I know, what do do we think of? We think of hospitality, probably entertaining guests, having family, friends over for dinner, that kind of thing, and that's a good, normal thing. But Peter's original readers, they had something very different in mind than what we probably comes to our mind. The word hospitality means literally love of strangers. And so this generally referred to offering food and shelter and, and support to people that they didn't know, believers who were coming through town, needing a place to stay, needing a meal to eat, needing uh, 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 that kind of thing. And so this stranger love was very practical in the first century church. And, so, and, and therefore, you, we find this idea appearing, popping up all over the New Testament. It's a qualification for being an elder. You must be hospitable. But hospitality, it offered a place... Uh, to stay, it offered rest at a time when public inns, you know, motels, they were not um, known for their morality or their cleanliness or their safety. And so this gave a, a safe place for people to rest. Hospitality eased the financial burden of missionaries who were passing through and traveling around it. Hospitality served individuals and, and groups from di- uh, distant churches who they were partnering together for ministry. Hospitality opened the doors of first century homes to serve as meeting places for local congregations. They didn't have church buildings, so they met in homes. And so that was 
an expression of hospitality. Hospitality offered a refuge to believers in times of persecution as they're fleeing uh, because of persecution and giving them a place to stay and, and to live. And so now we realize just from that description of what it looked like in their day, our context is quite different. Uh, not In some parts of the world, this would look very similar today, but that does not exempt us from the need to be hospitable. The form has changed, but the essence remains. And, and, and this is what I want you to see. Hospitality is, it, it, it is open-heartedness towards others before it is an activity of serving others. Do you get that? It's open-heartedness toward others before it's an activity of simply serving others. So don't immediately thinking, think of having someone over with this big elaborate meal, although that could be a, an expression of hospitality. But this is first and foremost an open-heartedness towards others because God has graciously opened His heart towards us, sinners that we are. And so what might this look like for you and me today? How should we be hospitable in light of the imminent um, end of all things? Let me just a couple ways. One, I think there is a connection here. Is one, see your home as a ministry tool. See, your, I know this is so radical for people in our day and time. Our homes are our castles. We tend to think like that, and we we pull the moat bridge and we just retreat into there. And this is just this is where we have our me time. God has given you your home as, as for two purposes. If you're a believer. One, it's a shelter for you and your family, and that's a gift from his hand. But it's your home or apartment or wherever you live. I mean, if you rent out a room and house, the place that you live, God has given you that as a shelter, and he's given you that as, a, as an opportunity to minister to others and serve others. And you, you need to think like that. Recal- recalibrate your mind as you think about the place that you dwell. Um, and, and so... Therefore, don't just open your home to a few uh, approved friends that are on your kind of list. That you say, okay, well, the, these ones, they're good, but nobody else. Use your home to minister to the wider body of Christ in the local church and outside. And so what, what does this look like? Inviting believers you don't know very well for a meal. This could be someone you meet in town. This could be somebody in our church. It could be somebody from another local church. Invite them for a meal. Invite them for coffee. Host missionaries or or visiting speakers. And so when there's an opportunity with our missions conference coming up, hey, so-and-so needs a place to stay, we should be scrambling to see who gets to take that first, not weeks and weeks and weeks going by waiting for someone to pick that up. How is families in need? If somebody has to leave their house for a while, you just be prepared. Think like that. Foster children. Um, in a very practical way. We have the EATSY sign-ups. If you don't know what that is, you can talk to Becky Pell, and she can explain. But it's a great opportunity just to be for, in homes, for meals with one another, and, 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 and together like that. But think of your home as a tool for ministry, for evangelism, for discipleship, for fellowship, encouragement. If you don't know where to start, just invite someone over for a meal. You can do that today. I mean, they don't have to come today. I realize you may not have food prepared, but... Maybe you do. And so invite someone over today or just plan ahead, do it next week. Um, so just think of people in, the, in, the, in our context. Maybe it's somebody that's new. Maybe it's a, a single college student that would just love a home-cooked meal. Or maybe it's uh, a widow in our church or, or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to get everybody to line up around a few people or something like that. But just, just think like that. 
And, and how can make your home the kind of place that has an extra seat at the table always? And so, and you're just always alert to people around you who perhaps can fill that seat. Some of you do this so well and are exemplary in this. And I, I thank God for you. And, and the others, we need, to, we need to grow in this. And so, do you know, just think. I mean, this may be your story, but I can, I can, and it's been part of my own story, and I have certainly talked to people. Do you, do you know how many, how many people's lives have been changed for the glory of Christ by the simple expression of, 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 of hospitality like this, inviting someone for a meal, having Christ-centered conversation and encouragement and in, in a home. I mean, that, that does tremendous things. So that's one way, one application for us. Another one. Second, see the Sunday gathering as a place to show hospitality. We've had a Sunday hospitality meeting soon, and many of you were there for that. But, but this is for all of us, not just a select team or something like that, a welcome team. But each Sunday there are guests here to reach out to, and there are just brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be greeted. Greet one another in the Lord. This is actually a command in the New Testament. This is one of those one another. Greet one another. So, so let's not theorize about what that might be. Just do it. Just shake a hand, warm smile, look them in the eye. It's it's great to see you today, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So so, but be, be be mindful in particular of guests. And let me commend you. You do this. Many of you do this so well. Um, I, I regularly hear from people who are visiting the church, and and they will say how warmly they were welcomed from the moment they came here and I mean there's many Sundays I'm like trying to line up behind all of you trying to greet somebody that's that's here and and you're hogging them but that's okay you're you're doing this and so um, but all of us not just to select for you just remember what it's like when you walked in here and the, the apprehension the reluctance the, and so so go out of your way to show warmth and hospitality to people right here on in our Sunday gatherings. Greet people, draw them into conversations, invite them to walk across, get a cup of coffee, uh, invite them for lunch, that kind of a thing. All right, sounds simple enough, right? No problem. Some of you are saying, yes, that doesn't sound simple at all. This is really stretching me to think about actually living this out. And here's the thing. Hospitality is hard work. And Peter is no dummy. He is a very wise and practical pastor. He understands this, and so he knows this can be hard. He knows there's sacrifice involved. He, he's aware that sinful attitudes can, can begin to surface when we start showing hospitality, and we can begin to do this with a wrong attitude. And so he qualifies this encouragement with those two words that we can't miss, show hospitality what, without grumbling. He knows we needed this. He show hospitality without resenting the time and the expense and the inconvenience that is involved in hospitality at times. We're, we're to show hospitality without secretly wishing we didn't have to show hospitality in this particular moment. But that's what we do, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it sounds great to invite a family for dinner, you know, two weeks out. Man, it just, it seems so far away that it can't get here soon enough. And then the night before, and you're, you know, scurrying around trying to get things ready and late night run to the grocery store and, and you, yeah, you look to yourself, why did, why did we invite this family over for dinner? <laughs> uh, we have so much going on. And, or when your guests stay a few extra days or plans change and the guest room is occupied and everybody's sharing the bathroom or when your schedule and your routine is interrupted because 
of being hospitable or when the phone rings for the 50th time it's the same person and or when that quick lunch turns into a whole afternoon affair and it cuts into your nap time and see there's possibilities for grumbling there's and so how do we keep from grumbling when showing hospitality well well one way and we'll talk about another way at the end we we see it, hospitality as a distinct christian privilege in Matthew 25, I don't have time to go there, you don't have to turn there, but when you're ministering to people, you, you look beyond the people. Matthew 25, you probably know the story, Jesus says, I want you to realize that on the day you stand before me, you, you, that you will realize that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I, I, was, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I, needed, I was in need of clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in, in prison and you came and visited me. And the text says, and the righteous will answer, Lord, we don't remember doing those things for you. When, when did we do those things? And Jesus said, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And so that's certainly a thing that should... Keep our grumbling in check. Fourth, quickly, I went. I was short last week, and it was a gift to you all, and so I'm getting it back this week. So we're, we're almost done. Fourth, because the end of all things is at hand, be an active conduit of God's grace to others. Be an active conduit of God's grace. Verse 10, as each has received a, gr- a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So let me just break this down quickly. One, each and every Christian has received a spiritual gift. That it's, a, it's a God-given ability that's empowered by the Holy Spirit for, for ministry in and through the church. And so every person, every, every, every person in the local church and in the body of Christ has received this a gift from the Lord. There, there are no giftless, therefore there are no useless Christians in the church. And, and, and so, and, and, the, and the, the, there's, there's all kinds of variety in the gifts that God has given. I know there are lists of gifts. Um, there's debate on whether it's just limited to that or whether, that's, whether those are truly exhaustive or not. But I would just say, it, as Peter says, it's, it's, this is God's varied grace, multifaceted, many different kinds of of grace and many different gifts sets and gifts that are represented in the local church. So we all have gifts. Second, whatever whatever gift we have comes from a divine giver. It's from God. It's His wisdom. It's a gift of His grace. You don't own your gift. The scripture Peter says you're a steward of it. You're you're not an owner of it, and so you're to manage it. You're to steward it. You're to be a conduit and not a passive conduit, just like a water pipe, just carrying water. But you're 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 a an active conduit. You're, you're propelling this forward, what God has given you. Third, we have been given these gifts to serve one another. So they, they have a selfless purpose. It's not the kind of gift you get a gift card for Target or Home Depot or whatever, and you think, what do I want to get myself with this? That's not how you should look at verse 10. No, God gave you the spiritual gift, not for your benefit, but for everyone else's benefit. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. My gift is for your good, and vice versa. You know, and, and again, Peter, he doesn't give a detailed list of the gifts here. Paul does that in other places. He, he just divides the grace gifts up into two very broad categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. 
And so the speaking gifts, it's, it's not just preaching and teaching in that formal sense, so it includes that, but it's, it's any kind of speaking ministry of, of the Word of God. And so it could be counseling others with the Scriptures, teaching one-on-one, and that kind of thing, small groups, evangelism, exhortation, those kinds of things. But, but Peter tells those with speaking gifts how they're to serve in the church in view of the end of all things that's at hand. How do, you, how do we to use those? They're to speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Some translations say the very utterances of God. It's not to say that, 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 that we're, we're to speak under divine inspiration where I'm, I'm actually giving, you know, new revelation from God coming out of my mouth, but it's, to, it's, it's emphasizing the importance of communicating God's truth. We're to speak, this is a, this is an important, serious task when we speak God's word. I don't mean we're grave and stern, but I mean it's, it, we're not just passing along our opinions, we're bringing people face to face with what God has spoken to his people. So we're to, to keep that in mind. And then there are those with serving gifts, and that's a broad category. Any kind of gifts used in, 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 in serving one another in and through the church, mercy and helps and giving and administrating and, and on and on. And so, and Peter tells those with serving gifts, how do they to serve in the church in view of the end of all things being at hand? And he says they're to serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. They're not to serve within their ability. They're, they're to serve with conscious awareness of their dependence upon God no matter what the task is. And so their standard response when, the, when there are needs that arise, their, their response is, yeah, I got, I got this. I can do this. But their standard response is, God, help me. Because <laughs> we're going to serve with the strength that you provide, God. Give me strength. And so... So this is what he's saying. We, in light of the end of all things, God has given you a gift. It's His very grace. And you're to use this and utilize this and steward this in serving one another in the church. You have a gift that needs to be utilized. You need to be an active conduit of God's grace to His people. And that, that happens in formal ways and it happens in, form, in, in informal ways. And so uh, we think of those formal ways and the programs and the gatherings and the events and you know, the people with titles, that kind of thing in a church. But most ministry in a church happens under the radar in very informal ways. It's, it, it's, it's life-on-life interactions that just take place all the time. It's when a home is flooded and you, you show up and you help clean up the mess. Or when a family's moving, you show up and help them pack. It's when babies are born and you prepare a meal. It's marriages are having difficulty and you meet with them and just pray with them. It's when you drop off a bag of groceries to a family who's struggling. It's, it's, it's introducing yourself to a guest. It's, it's, t- um, it's when you ask about a difficult situation that's walking, they're walking through and, and you show genuine concern and you listen to them and pray with them. It's, it's, it's um, praying for a family who's going through a hardship. It's making a phone call to someone you didn't see on a Sunday. It's writing a note of encouragement to someone you know is having a difficult time. It's just meeting with a brother or sister in Christ and reading the scripture, reading a book together. It's just on and on and on. But we all need to be utilizing this. This is, this is one of the reasons we moved to this format because we've tended to think of a little tear-off thing as just something for, for new folks. But this is to be for all of us. And, and so one of the next steps is, and we, and we added this even this week, am I interested in opportunities to serve? I don't mean you've got to wait for us to tell you how to serve because there are all these informal ways that you are doing and can do immediately. But are you looking? Do you want help? Do you want guidance to discern where, where you might serve? And so I would encourage you, if, you're, if, you're, if you need to heed this exhortation, then please make note of that. Lastly, I'm just going to be able to mention it. 
because of the end of all things is at hand, live doxologically. I mean, live worshipfully. Live for the glory of God. That's, that's what we're talking about, doxology. We speak God's word and we serve God's people in order that everything and everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's our motive and service. And then verse, end of verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I have joy in my heart this morning as I preach this text. <laughs> because I, I read these words from Pastor Peter and then I look up from my Bible and I see you. And many of you are, are just living illustrations of these, these very uh, truths and exhortations. And, and I'm grateful for that. I, I'm very, very grateful. But, but we all, we, we all need to grow more. And maybe there's one or two of these that you think, man, I, I, I need, I need help. I need to, I need to grow in this area. And and so, but all of this is possible, and only possible. Uh, this end of living in light of, on the edge of eternity and being self-controlled and so mindful for the purpose of prayer and loving one another above everything else and showing hospitality without complaint and and using our gifts to serve one another and living for the glory of God. This is all possible only because of what took place on a hill called Calvary. Now just consider, we're, we're able to address God in prayer because what? Because Jesus Christ died once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That He might bring us to God. That we would have access to God. So therefore, we can be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. We're able to cover uh, and, and forbear and forgive and overlook the sins of others in love only because Christ atoned for all of our sins. So we can be, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, because of Christ we can now be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And we welcome others into our homes and, and up to our tables and into our hearts. Why? Only because God has graciously welcomed us into His house and up to His table. We sing this song often. Once His enemies, now seated at His table. Jesus, thank You. And we serve one another with the gifts that we've been given because Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so... So this isn't just, let's get our act together. Let's, let's look to Jesus Christ. And this is why Peter can't help but go here at the end. And he ends with this doxology. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would You help us to, to so look to Christ and to be so in, in, um, in awe of Jesus and so... Um, uh, and that we would treasure Jesus so much is better than anything else, Father. And it's as we do that that we can see these um, these realities become more present in our own lives, Father. And we can really see what love and hospitality and and clear-headed praying, dependence upon You, and serving with the gifts that You give us and the strength that You provide, and all to Your glory. We can see what that looks like. So. Uh, we, we, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.